Hi, everyone, and welcome back for episode 23 of Take It or Leave It, where we discuss the hottest topics in the world of workplace leaves, absence management, and accommodations. I'm your host, Josh Seiden. I want to take you back to a not-so-distant time in late 2021. Our Take It or Leave It podcast had yet to debut. I admittedly was very nervous about embarking on a new leave of absence and accommodations marketing journey. How different could a podcast be from, say, legal updates and blog posts or surveys and webinar series or infographics, you name it. Our SciFar team churns out all of that content regularly, so what's another podcast? Well, our inaugural episode quickly eliminated my skepticism and immediately wrote me into the world of podcasts. And here we are 23 episodes later with the leave of absence and accommodations world continuing to evolve, continuing to keep employers in a state of constantly waiting for the next shoe to drop. And rightly so. 2023 has been full of significant leaves and accommodations related developments, many of which we heard about during episode 22 when we discussed legislative updates during the first half of this year. Now, during our inaugural Take It or Leave It episode, we covered the hugely impactful and timely topic of religious accommodations for the COVID-19 vaccine. Today, we revisit the timely topic of religious accommodations in the aftermath of the Supreme Court's decision from last month in Groff versus DeJoy and its impact on determining when a religious accommodation constitutes an undue hardship for an employer. And today, just like in our inaugural episode, I am overjoyed to be welcoming back Dawn Soloway, one of our firm's top religious accommodation experts, to discuss this hugely impactful case. Dawn is a partner in our Boston office. She has extensive knowledge and skill in helping clients navigate requests for religious accommodations, such as requests for time off for Sabbath observance, prayer breaks, or modification of work uniforms for religious reasons. Dawn helps employers understand the legal framework and partners with them to consider accommodation options and challenges and to respond effectively to accommodation requests. She is a frequently published author on the hot button topic of religious accommodation and discrimination. She's been litigating and counseling employers on religious accommodations for more than 15 years, well before the likes of Groff and COVID-19 vaccine put religious accommodations front and center for many, many employers. Dawn, thank you so much for joining me today and for your next round of Take It or Leave It. So excited to have you here. Thanks so much, Josh. It's great to be back. Yes, it, it is. And uh, I'm, I'm hopefully a little bit more seasoned and a little bit less deer in the headlights than I was my first episode. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's jump in. We have so much ground to cover. And to set the stage for our listeners, I think it would be helpful even before we jump into Groff and, and, and its impacts. Can you give our folks a little background on religious accommodations? Absolutely. So um, the law is fairly straightforward in terms of the test in this space. The rule is that when an employee advises an employer of a sincere religious belief that conflicts with some sort of job requirement, the employer has to engage in an interactive process with the employee to explore uh, reasonable accommodations and has to either provide a reasonable accommodation or be able to show that it can't do so without an undue hardship to its business. And so the Graf case really comes in on that undue hardship standard. Great, great. And and that that is certainly making a lot of uh, the headlines, as I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll get into in just a couple of minutes here. To help maybe set the stage once more, right, again, before we dive into Graf, there's been this sort of this seminal case, Trans World Airlines versus Hardison came out in 1977 from the Supreme Court. 
Can you explain to listeners, maybe just give them a, a quick overview of how Hardison factors into the religious accommodation space? Absolutely. So Hardison really was the law of the land um, on, in terms of undue hardship for 50 years before the Groff decision issued. And Hardison held that an accommodation creates an undue hardship if it causes more than a de minimis burden on the employer's business. So that de minimis standard was really the law of the land and what courts have been applying and employers have been relying on and what the EEOC relied on in its guidance for five decades. What's interesting is that in a very little noticed footnote, Hardison also referred to substantial additional costs. And that footnote uh, became very prominent when it came time for the Graf case. So, you know, I think it's also important to understand, though, that even though de minimis sort of sounds like it's just a, a trifle, almost a, just barely above nothing, exactly. um, that's not ever what we advised employers mm -hmm. to do when they were considering undue hardship. Because at the end of the day, the employer has the burden to prove undue hardship. And um, those of us who try cases know that that means that you're going to be, if the case goes that far, standing in front of a jury, having to persuade them that this was an undue hardship. And mm. so we've always counseled clients to um, be mindful of being able to quantify the hardship, be specific to um, only rely on real actual hardships and not sort of speculation. And so in that sense, we don't want to overstate the change because, um, you know, we always counseled employers to make sure they could really make a showing even when the standard was de minimis. That's great and, and, and really helpful background, really insightful. And I think the takeaway for a lot of folks is be careful what you put in footnotes, right? There's, there's a lot <laughs> come back exactly. by 50 years later. So make sure you're, you're paying attention to, to every, every, every period there. So let's jump in for a few minutes now to, to Groff. And with all this background in mind, can you tell our listeners, so what was Groff about? What were some of the key issues that were at stake for the folks involved in the case? Sure, yeah. So the petitioner, Gerald Groff, was a carrier for the Postal Service, um, and he claimed that his religious beliefs prohibited him from working on Sundays. When he refused to work on a Sunday, the Postal Service disciplined him, and that prompted him to resign. And he later sued the Postal Service for violating Title VII for failure to reasonably accommodate his religious beliefs. Um, the district court ruled in favor of the Postal Service and the Third Circuit affirmed, and those were both relying on that seminal case of TWA versus Hardison and the de minimis standard. The Supreme Court granted Graf's petition to review the legal reasoning from TWA versus Hardison. And, you know, for those of us who, who follow this area of the law closely, we knew that there were certain members of the Supreme Court who were looking and waiting for an opportunity to revisit Hardison. So Justice Alito had um, indicated that in a 2020 case and Justice Gorsuch in a 2021 case. So it, it was widely known among those of us who practice in this area that the Supreme Court was looking for the right vehicle to take up the issue of the de minimis standard and they chose the Groff case. Mm, yeah, well, well, you know, opportunity is, uh, is only there if you seize it. And I think, it's so helpful to also have that perspective where a lot of folks might have been caught off guard 
by this decision and the ramifications of it spilling into practical accommodations work for, for employers. But as you said, if you've been you know, sort of keeping your ear to the ground and, and reading the tea leaves a bit, this might not have been as much of a surprise. So I think that's a really important point. That's right. And and I think, you know, in in our cases, our active pending litigation, we have been very careful over the last year plus to be framing our briefing in such a way that when this decision came down, it would not impact um, the strategy or the briefing in the case. So, yeah, it's not as much of a surprise as maybe some in the media have um, have made it out to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's great. That, that's, that's all really valuable insight. Let me ask, so we covered what happened at the two lower courts. We covered what some of the, the factual issues and the setup was. What were some of the Supreme Court's main holdings in last month's decision? Yeah, so the, the court was really looking at two core issues. One was whether the, the court would affirm or change the de minimis test from Hardison as to what is an undue hardship under Title VII. And two, the court was looking at whether an employer can show undue hardship under Title VII merely by showing that the requested accommodation has some kind of negative impact on the employee's coworkers. And that has been kind of a murky area of the law for quite some time. And so the court um, had before it, you know, how how to think about impact on coworkers um, in terms of undue hardship. So on on that first issue, um, the court, it said that it clarified the undue hardship standard. So the court was careful not to say that they were overturning Hardison. They were merely clarifying it. But what the court did is to basically um, get rid of the de minimis standard and to say that instead the employer must show that the burden of granting an undue hardship would result in substantial increased costs in relation to the conduct of its particular business. Um, And as I said before, that kind of picks up on some little noticed language from that footnote in Hardison. Um, I think, you know, what happened is that the government knew that de minimis was not going to survive. And so argued that this some formulation similar to substantial costs might be an appropriate measure and that that actually was already in Hardison. So it only needed to be clarified. The court was very careful to emphasize that what is a substantial increased cost has to be analyzed in light of the particular employer. So the, the, you have to look at the nature, the size, and the operating cost of the employer when you're thinking about what is a substantial increased cost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that is that is a lot to unpack, but, but really, really good explanations on, on both of those key key holdings. Before we unpack them a little bit further, I'm curious. So given how closely, you know, you and and some of the other folks on our team are in this space and tracking the buildup to this decision, to me, it it was surprising to see anything coming out of the Supreme Court that is unanimous uh, these days. Did that surprise you at all? I know you were sort of anticipating that something big was coming, but was was this surprising to you that it was a unanimous decision? It wasn't um, in light of... I would say both the oral argument and some of the way that the briefing was structured. So Mm -hmm. um, at at oral argument, the um, justices really from across the political spectrum were talking about how to try to find common ground between 
the two sides of the case and really neither party defended the de minimis standard. I think, you know, the government knew that that was not going to be successful. And so it was really a question of what standard they were going to adopt, but they were pretty openly seeking common ground. And there was a lot of common ground between the two parties at the argument. So it's always dangerous to read too many tea leaves from Supreme Court arguments, but it was, you know, not not really that surprising having heard. Uh no, understood. And that, that, that's great. I think, again, when you're talking about just what makes the headlines, right? I mean, unanimous in Supreme Court, that makes a headline. So it was something that jumped out to me. But that, that is, is great to hear uh, that, again, for folks that were paying attention and tracking this as it progressed to, to the decision last month, that the signs were trending and pointing in this direction. So let's uh, let's explore the impact of, of Groff on religious accommodations and Hardison and its de minimis test just a little bit further here. I know we've spoken a bit about it already. So can you kind of refresh and, and, and rehash for folks where things stand today currently with Title VII's undue hardship standard in terms of the substantial increased costs? versus de minimis. You know, is de minimis done for in this space? I know you mentioned a few minutes ago that it, it isn't quite done for, but, but let's maybe talk through and unpack that a bit. Yeah, I think it's done for in the sense that no one is going to be citing de minimis mm -hmm. um, after mm -hmm. off. But, you know, like I said, there are some things that haven't changed. So, you know, the employer always had the burden to prove undue hardship to, to an agency or a judge or a jury. Um, the employer always had to look at the particular request in the light of the employer's operations. And we've long recommended that employers quantify very carefully with legal counsel the nature of the accommodation to be sure that it's something that can be proved. So none of that has really changed. And, you know, the court even said that a good deal of the EEO, EEOC guidance um, is, is probably not going to change. Mm -hmm. um, I would say also in terms of what hasn't changed, um, the court was noticeably silent as to whether health and safety impacts can be an undue hardship. And our view is that that was really the court leaving in place the longstanding rule that, that health and safety impacts can be an undue hardship. Um, so, you know, the vaccine exemption cases are a perfect example of that, where we believe that it's very much still an undue hardship to allow somebody, you know, who's unvaccinated to be in a workplace if they are dealing with vulnerable patients or coworkers or the public or clients. And, you know, there are other kinds of health and safety impacts that can also be undue hardships, whether it's burning incense in a room with combustibles, which was an actual counseling matter that I that I handled, um, or, you know, prayer breaks that might interrupt a manufacturing line. Um, the court is always very reluctant to require a religious accommodation if it's going to actually be potentially harmful to other people. So that's kind of what hasn't changed. I think what has changed is that this is clearly a signal that there will be, you know, kind of increased rigor mm -hmm. um, in the courts in terms of what is going to count as an undue hardship. And, you know, some courts had already been leaning this way, but now this is, you know, the Supreme Court. And so it's very much a signal in that sense. And, you know, I think it will be even more important for employers to make sure that they have a thoughtful, considered, decision about why a particular accommodation is an undue hardship um, before they deny it. Mm -hmm. um, I would say also in terms of practical effects, we expect to see even more religious accommodation requests, which have already increased exponentially in the last couple of years, and more religious accommodation litigation. I think this will embolden the plaintiff's bar. It will embolden some 
religious groups who are very invested in kind of pursuing litigation. And, you know, what we're seeing is not only continued requests for exemption and, and litigation about vaccines, but also more and more we're seeing an increase in the trend toward religious requests for being exempt from LGBTQ plus training or programming or you know, I don't want to participate in Pride Month because of my religion, or I don't want to attend anti-discrimination training because it's against my religion. I don't want to use the pronouns that are preferred by some of my coworkers because of my religion. And mm -hmm. this will only accelerate that trend mm -hmm. um, and kind of embolden some of the of the um, forces that are invested in, in bringing those kinds of requests and, and cases. That is all so fascinating. And, and I think a really important diagnosis of how many layers and, and how widespread this decision will have or could have. You know, it really important sort of laying out what hasn't changed. I think that that is a really useful takeaway for employers who are, are wondering how much rehauling or overhauling rather they need to do for their processes that are in place. And again, knowing that de minimis is sort of done for, it's not going to be cited to, but that at least Hardison has, you know, just been clarified, but not been kind of thrown to the curb. Uh, I think those are those are good takeaways. The impact on, again, the increase in litigation, the increase in, in requests, I guess COVID prepared us for a lot of things. And maybe this was one of them. Uh, That's exactly right. <laughs> um, so, so there's that at least coming out of Groff. You mentioned this point a, a bit earlier, at least I think we're, we're, we're building towards this, but in addition to substantial increased costs versus de minimis and everything we've spoken about the last few minutes, Groff also, and the Supreme Court and Groff also took aim at what it referred to as several recurring issues in religious accommodation cases, right? Things like the extent to which the impact on coworkers can be an, an undue hardship, as well as the issues of, of overtime. Can you maybe spend a minute or two just elaborating on those pieces of the decision? Yeah, absolutely. So the court pretty definitively said that the fact that other employees would have to work overtime is not going to be an undue hardship by itself. And, you know, that's not inconsistent with what we have kind of long counseled clients, because particularly mm -hmm. with an employer of any size, it's tough to argue that just overtime by itself, I mean, absent some sort of extenuating circumstances, is enough, mm -hmm. I think even under de minimis, but now it's clearly not enough. The coworker you know, issue is fascinating because um, I think that's something that employers have often struggled with is if a religious accommodation request would decrease morale or annoy other coworkers or require coworkers to do something that they prefer not to do, like work on Sunday when they might prefer to be at their kid's soccer game. When does that rise to the level of an undue hardship? And so the court gave us some guidance on that that I think actually might be helpful for employers in the sense of at least having some structure to it. Mm -hmm. um, and really what it held is it's a two-part test. You need to show, one, that there's a negative impact on coworkers, but two, and this is kind of the new part, that that impact on coworkers actually affects the conduct of the business. So it's, it's a two-part test now, and I think that, you know, we're going to need to see as the cases develop exactly how the courts define when a coworker impact reaches the level that it's actually affecting the conduct of the business. You know, the clarity is helpful for certain, and it's nice to have it laid out as cleanly as you just did. So thank, thank you for that. A related wrinkle 
coming out of Groff is the impact or, or maybe perhaps uh, lack thereof of the court's decision on Title VII's special statutory protection for seniority systems. Can you share just some brief thoughts on what Groff means for workplaces that have seniority-based bidding systems in place? Yes. Um, so, you know, the, the court in general, kind of just for a moment spanning out um, to, to all workplaces, was really kind of openly encouraging that shift swapping, allow, allowing employees to swap shifts, say to observe a Sabbath or observe some sort of other uh, religious holiday, for example, that shift swapping is something that may be a reasonable accommodation without an undue hardship. And more than that, that employers have some obligation to actually facilitate those swaps. So then taking that for a moment back to sort of unionized workplaces, you know, obviously in a unionized setting, there are collective bargaining agreements and seniority systems so that those kind of swaps are not necessarily as straightforward as they would be in a non-unionized workplace. So really what it comes down to for unionized settings is that um, employers that have seniority systems should look at the specific bidding system in their workplace. So they want to think about, you know, is the bidding system not truly seniority based so that Title VII protections don't attach? Is the employer employee senior enough to bid another shift? such that that might accommodate the employee's religious needs? Um, is it possible for the employee to trade shifts with someone else? Is it possible for the employer to leave the shift short-staffed? Is that something that, you know, what is the effect of that? Is it possible for the employer to incentivize other employees to pick up a shift, you know, for unionized employers without running afoul of the CBA? Is there any other way to get the shift covered without the employee? And so it's really kind of, uh, again, just with a more rigorous standard now, kind of really drilling down into, is it actually going to violate the seniority system that's in place? Wow. Again, another really important wrinkle, uh, especially as you sort of spoke about it, it's going to be touching on union and non-union workforces, uh, both that they potentially have have these in place. So really useful uh, pieces there. Let me ask one final big ticket question of the day. And I think there's certainly been bits and pieces and some sprinkling of practical strategies for what employers should do when faced with religious accommodation requests in the wake of Groff. Um, but can you maybe give our, our listeners a few thoughts on, on the current you know, practices in dealing with these religious accommodations and how they would apply substantial costs in their business? Yes. I think one of the most important takeaways is that employers should be immediately providing training. Mm -hmm. um, anyone who intersects with religious accommodation requests, um, whether that's in-house counsel, um, human resources, managers, they need to know that the standard has changed. Um, they need to understand the substantial cost standard. They need to understand um, the overtime and coworker issues. In unionized setting, they need to understand those special circumstances. Um, so that, you know, we, we, for example, provide that kind of training to clients. And, uh, and it really needs to be customized to that particular work setting because the substantial cost is customized to a particular work setting. And, you know, depending, it, it, you know, maybe very different issues in retail versus a manufacturing facility versus a sales force or a sort of white collar setting. And so, you know, it's best to have that training be kind of customized to the particular employer. 
Um, and I think, you know, employers who are, are um, processing a request for accommodation need to be thinking about whether they can prove a substantial increased cost in the light of their particular business. So the size and the resources of the business matter a lot. It's going to matter, for example, a lot if it's, you know, a, a grocery store that has three employees in the building at a time versus, um, you know, a large retailer that might have 100 employees um, in the building at the same time. And so it, it really needs to be a kind of case-by-case -case analysis. And, you know, companies need to be thinking about, you know, how large is the business? What are the financial costs of the accommodation? Can they quantify those costs? Are these real costs as opposed to speculative costs? Um, are there health and safety risks at play? Um, what's the business impact? Um, is there a coworker impact that might affect the operations of the business? And then the specific accommodation itself, like what, what is the nature of it? Um, how long is the duration of the requested accommodation? How many employees are seeking that accommodation? Mm -hmm. um, and it, that's really something that you, you really need to do with counsel that's experienced in this area. Um, we frequently will provide clients with talking points um, so they go into that interactive process with the employee with a defined kind of script or, or talking points, because this is tricky stuff. Um, it needs to be respectful. It needs to be careful. It needs to be, there are certain questions that are appropriate to ask, certain questions that are not appropriate to ask. And then the person who's doing that interactive process can kind of take in that information from the employee and say, okay, we're going to take this under advisement. We'll be back to you promptly. And then kind of you know, do a download with counsel to determine next steps in, in that interactive process. Um, I think a lot of clients are moving toward um, having a religious accommodation request form. That's mm -hmm. something that we saw more in COVID because in the vaccine exemption space, there were so many requests that um, it became overwhelming to do it in any way other than with a kind of more formal written form. And so th that's something that we can help employers with as well. Wow. That is, I mean, all so useful, so important to hear, I think, how many moving parts there are to to, to, to this process and how fact-specific it is to the nature of the worker and their requests and to the nature of the employer and their industry and their specific business dealings. And, and it's going to be a, a moving target for each case that comes in, as you said, for each accommodation request. So uh, reaching out to you and your team is certainly sort of first number that I'll be dialing uh, when you, when you, <laughs> so I, I appreciate uh, everything that you just shared, both, both for me, educating myself, but educating our listeners on, on, on everything that they need to be aware of here. Don, thank you for walking us through Groff and its many layers and its impact on religious accommodations. For our listeners who are interested in learning more uh, about Groff, Don and a few of our colleagues just held a hugely successful, widely attended, I think we were talking, well, like almost a thousand folks, right, joined the webinar? It was, yeah, 1,400 or so. There you go. So uh, if anyone uh, missed out on that, please reach out to Dawn. Uh, we have recordings. We can give assistance and, and guidance and help them navigate this this moving target, this changing landscape. Uh, so Dawn, thank, thank you for sharing all, all of your knowledge with us. Yeah, it was great to be back on the podcast. Thanks so much. Of course, of course. Uh, and thank you again. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. See you next time.